This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. The following episode of TOEFOP is rated MA for mature audiences. It may contain sexual references, time travel references, allegations of bin misconduct, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that this episode is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who thinks a comedy conversation between two old mates sounds like a terrible idea for a show. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax, this is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. And should we start with our traditional start of the podcast? Yeah, I mean, look, let's not pull the curtain back too far, but uh, uh, we, we asked Mike what he was wearing tonight because he was wearing a, a dark T-shirt with a little insignia on it. I couldn't quite make it out over Skype. Turns out it's uh, a university RMIT T-shirt. Now, we didn't clarify because we said that was enough. We can... We can get going with that. But uh, while we're talking, Mike, can you tell us, is this a university you attended or did you get this from like St. Vinny's or something like that? Just somebody who went to RMIT who's like, I'm done with this shithole of an institution. I've thrown this in the bin and Mike's like, I, I don't need to go to university if I just have this T-shirt that I wear around. People are going, I bet that guy went to RMIT. Why would you wear an RMIT T-shirt if you didn't? An RMIT T-shirt, as they call them, down at the gift shop at RMIT. <laughs> Uh, he said, yes, he did actually attend RMIT, uh, and now here he is, our producer. <laughs> so, I was well, it a, was it a me- job in the media. Media arts Producing degree? A, yeah, that's, that's actually pretty good, I reckon, with a modern-day media arts degree. I want to know what degree Podcast Mike did do, though. So, I want to know what degree he did. Yeah, that's a communications degree, which is essentially a media arts degree, which is the same degree I did. Um, Mine wasn't called communications. Mine was called media arts. And the university I studied at uh, no longer exists. I believe they bulldozed it and turned it into a car park for for Monash Monash Uni. Yeah, but the good news was they were the three of the greatest years you spent at Trump University. (laughs) And every dollar you spent on that education was worth it. Well, it was one of these things too where I had the option of going to RMIT or this university. It was Rusden. It was at Deakin University, Rusden campus. But the Rusden campus was like uh, Deakin University's dedicated arts campus. So they had like a theatre course and a drama course and a media course and stuff. But what you sort of discovered when you actually, like we did the orientation, it all seemed pretty exciting. And I was like, oh my God, it's going to be like fame school. There's going to be dancers, you know, at lunchtime in the cafeteria and it's going to be amazing. But then when we got there, uh, because I went there with Michael Chamberlain, uh, when we enrolled and we started there, we realised that they were... Uh, very badly underfunded and to make up numbers they just like took anyone into these courses so for you know the filmmaking class for instance there was only like four cameras but they just pumped as many students as they could into that class so you got like well you know what I like is those universities traditionally they trade on the previous people who went there Mm. like you go to NIDA because Mel Gibson went to NIDA or whatever it is, right? Yep. You go, this person, he became a really successful actor. Yeah, I've got a degree in anti-Semitism. Um, I went to the same university as Mel Gibson. It's one of the, one of the old courses. <laughs> I reckon it's not on the NIDA curriculum anymore. <laughs> they used to do a minor in anti-Semitism <laughs> and then there was like misogynist insults used to be a course, yeah. a course as well. But they've dropped those out. No, but so I reckon Rusden, if it was still around, the fact that you and Michael Chamberlain both went there and have... Two of the biggest comedy AFL-related football (laughs) podcasts in media would be a big selling point for them. Well, I actually remember in my communications media class, they were showing us like previous students, not like, hey, these are the guys who aspire to, just previous examples of previous students' work. And one of the uh, alumni was Nick Giannopoulos. Okay. Well, I mean... I guess that's good. Like, he's a guy who... You've got to say this about Nick Giannopoulos. Like, you could say a lot of things about Nick Giannopoulos, but the thing that I'm going to say about Nick Giannopoulos is he's a dude who created his own world and his own work. Like, he had a universe. Like, he was a guy like an Edgar Wright or like a Quentin Tarantino or like a Christopher Nolan or whatever. Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith is probably a really good example. Like, his universe was stage plays, it was movies, it was TV shows. They had some of the same characters. Sometimes they weren't the same characters, but they were kind of set in the same attitude and universe. Like, he did all that himself. And 
not only did it all himself, but did it at a time where as an ethnic Australian, like mm. there hadn't been that representation of ethnic Australians in the media before. Now, I think that some people would argue there's probably a downside to that as well, but you've got to admire the fact that he built it all himself. If, if I was being sold a university and I'd seen this guy go out of that university and create his own universe... From university to universe. That Universes. would be my tag slogan. Rusden would still be around if they put me in charge of the marketing, Charlie. Well, I think I think I agree with everything you said. I think the thing that maybe tainted Nick Giannopoulos was that sketch they did on The Late Show, Santo Chilaro sketch, which was like, that wasn't a direct send-up of Nick Giannopoulos, but it was a comedian who had made his, made his money sending up ethnic stereotypes. And I think... Santo, if he, and I imagine Santo was the key driving creative force behind that sketch. I think everything that Santo skewed in that sketch is probably what, uh, is, is what deflated Nick Giannopoulos or, or you could be used against Nick Giannopoulos is what he's built his career on. Yeah, I agree. But sometimes I think the pioneers have to be quite broad in that way. You're not going to get your, like you need a Nick Giannopoulos so that other people can come along and make, you know. Well, with that, Nick Giannopoulos, there's no Halzos, there's no Paul Fennick, there's none of that stuff, fat pizza, any of that stuff that came afterwards. Yeah, I agree. But you'd also argue that maybe there's no black comedy and maybe there's no, you yeah. know, these sort of shows that were like even like things like Big Girls Blouse because there was a time where the idea of having like a whole show that was just female comedians was a revolutionary idea. And in the same way as like, you know, when Nick came along, the idea that, like, you know, there was not only an ethnic comedian could talk to these huge ethnic audiences, you know, because that was yeah. his initial appeal, right? He was doing comedy that was recognised by that community as being comedy that they enjoyed and then it managed to go mainstream. It's not like he was on mainstream TV, like, making fun of the culture he grew up in and the culture he grew up in didn't enjoy it. He built it yeah. through the culture he grew up in. Oh, no. Like, when I was working with Ada on Home and Away, like, we would often talk about, like, Acropolis Now and that Effie stereotype, that Greek-Australian female stereotype. And, like, my understanding is that they all thought it was hilarious and she would drop into an Effie accent all the time because it was like, you know, there's some truth in that. I mean, it's one of those things where I couldn't do it. <laughs> like, I'm not about to drop into that accent. You know, I'm not friendly Geordies. I'm not about to just like drop into that accent willy-nilly. But, you know, for, as far as she was concerned, like even Con the Fruiter, like, you know, I, we'd bring that up as like, oh my God, can you believe that there was a time when a straight white male could, you know, pretend to be. But she was like, well, yeah, I think white Australia got more offended by that than actual Greeks who saw what the joke was. Right. I, I agree with that. And I also love how quickly we've gone from university education to fucking comedy company. <laughs> well, it's a short, it's a short bridge, Will. I love that we started so educated today. It was like we were on NPR or something. I felt like this Australian life, like we're talking about Mike's communications degree. Like it made me feel like I was on a better podcast when I immediately thought, hey, we've got a guy in charge of this podcast who's got himself like a communications degree at RMIT, which is a very prestigious institution. I don't yep. know if he finished it. Mike, did you finish your degree? I believe he did, 2014 to 2016. Okay, so he's finished. He's graduated from his... Did you finish your degree? Did you graduate? Yes, yeah, I finished my degree. Um, I found the three years of doing that degree, I think it was a good grounding in terms of Give me an overview of, you know, the, like, because we did radio, we did TV production, we did film, we did a whole bunch of things. But I learned more in the six months after I left university and started actually working in a production company. I think yeah. all of that stuff the, about... When you graduated university to the University of Hard Knocks, uh, uh -huh. where, you really, <laughs> where you get your real education. Well, I think that cliche about, you know, um, there's, there's always that cliche about, especially art school, uh, art university teachers being kind of bitter and washed up and those who can't, those who can do, those who can't teach. And that was predominantly the case with the teachers I had. There was a lot of misinformation being fed to us about the industry, a lot of stuff I was being told. And it was all, it, it, only in retrospect did you come to realise this was all the perspective of bitter people who had not been successful, who just told you how hard it was going to be and that if you wanted to make this, you've got to sell either your soul or you've got to mortgage your house. And it was all... Doom they should gloom, get someone doom. in to make that speech. In fact, they should get you, former graduate, 
mm. media, uh, like, you know, you've got a degree. Media you come arts. Back yeah. As like an ex-student to just deliver some truth. And so every year at the start of the year, just before the regular lecturers and tutors come in, you come in and say, hey, I just need you all to know that everything that you're going to hear is from a bunch of bitter losers. So just <laughs> keep that in mind when they're educating you that it is from the perspective of a real bitter loser. I mean, I don't want to paint them all with that brush, but there were definitely... My photography lecturer in first year uni put me off photography because... He had this word, I think we've talked about this before, but he, um, he had this very deep kind of voice. It was, he spoke like this, and his name was Mr. Green. And, uh, you know, we'd be given assignments, we'd have to go shoot portraits, or we'd have to do still life or whatever. And then we'd have to stand up in front of the class, you'd show your work, and then you'd have to justify it or talk about it. And if you weren't winning him over, he would say, mm, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but that's just banal. I mean, what you're saying to me is just banal. There's a lot of banality to that. And I was one of those guys who never quite um, like Michael Chamberlain was really, from my memory, Michael was really good at these assignments. Maybe it was his early signs of early comedy, but he would always have a point to what he was doing. There's always a funny little kind of bit of satire or something going on. What Michael would do, but I just would, I would just see something that I thought was like a pretty picture and take a photo of it or whatever it was. <laughs> and then when it came time to justify, well, that does he, sound pretty banal. To be fair. Well, to this teacher, the fact that you were just seeing something pretty and taking a photograph. Well, I don't know if it was more that I'd say pretty pictured, but I, I found it harder to articulate why what I was trying to create with that image. And I think that, you know, the more artists I've met and the more you know time I spend with artists, like a lot of artists don't, if you ask them to justify or explain what they're doing, they couldn't tell you. A lot of them are doing it just because it's something that they need to do. And I think that this idea of, creating artists through a higher education system might be, well, at least in this, well, uh, this university, it was like, well, it's not like you're doing art theory. This is meant to be like art practice. So maybe you should sort of se segregate the two courses. If you want to have a teacher make a student feel bad, because it did make me feel like I had nothing to say, because everything that I was bringing in, I was told was banal. It's just banal. I recently went back to my university the University of Canberra. I also got accepted to RMIT. That was where I was possibly going to do my communications degree, but my specialist specialism was journalism. So it was like a, right. you know, me, not media arts, but, you know, media communications, you know, and journalism. And so they did that at RMIT. They did that um, in Sydney at UTS and they did it at Canberra University. And I was doing that thing where I really wanted to go to RMIT yeah. But I applied to the others because it was back in the day where like if it's interstate, you can apply more than once to different things. So I had some backup plans. And in the end, I got into RMIT and into Canberra. I didn't get into UTS, but I got into RMIT and I got into Canberra and I decided to go to Canberra for whatever, for a bunch of different reasons. And um, I went back to the university for the 30 year anniversary of the university. And when mm. I looked at, the dates that I was at the university, I realized the university had only really been a university for a couple of years when I decided to go there. So in retrospect, that was a ah. incredibly reckless decision I was making to turn down a revered institution like RMIT that turned out top class journalists all over the country to take a risk on a little bloody community college that had turned itself into a university, you know, two years before I decided to go. Mine was kind of the like the opposite mentality and I I, f I feel like I, I, sh I wish I'd gone to RMIT because I remember when uh, we applied so RMIT back in the day I'm not sure if it was the same for you Mike but uh, to get accepted into the communications degree it was portfolio based so you had to present examples of stuff you'd made in your you know your VCE and then Deacon I, I was to, more I, I had to do that by the way even when I and I, mine was still HSC because I'm a little bit older than you but when I applied to RMIT, I had to go through that process as well. So okay. I actually did that, like, you know, for right. journalism, but it was the similar. I mean, I bet there was crossover in the what you had to do. Yeah, but Deacon I'm was starting to realise that we are the three great successes of the RMIT recruitment <laughs> program. <laughs> Fine, one day, these three generations of men will get together and make a podcast. What is a podcast, sir? Oh, you can't imagine what it is now, but... <laughs> It's like a radio show that you can do from your own house and 
<laughs> no, you don't really get paid, but no one can tell you to stop. Yeah, I, I, I remember making Michael and I. Our plan was because we did everything. We were like Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Our plan was. Um, so we ended up choosing Deacon because that was more based on your actual VCE score. And for some reason, I was like, well, anyone can come up with a good portfolio, but only smart people get like good marks. And so that was my justification for choosing Deacon. But what we were going to do was get it, we got accepted into Deacon. We're going to defer for a year. Then we're going to go to Footscray Tech because we heard there was a really good uh, like one year filmmaking course where you could just sort of learn all the kind of practical stuff of filmmaking. So... Uh, that was our plan, but then when we uh, when we tried to defer, Deacon said, "No, you can't just take a place and then defer for a year. You'll lose your place." And so we gave up Footscray, and then we went to to Deacon. But I really wish because all the like Lee Winnell and James Wan came out of the same year of RMIT <laughs> that I turned down. It's like, well, if those guys came through that university and you see where their careers are now, maybe that could have been like Megan Spencer, I think was also part of that same class that Lee was in. They had like, quite... I mean, you, you, at the very least you could have got into their crew. Yeah. You could have been Lee Winnell and James Wan's Rob Schneider. <laughs> like just the dude who just popped up in all their stuff and everybody's like, uh, who's that dude? And they're like, no, no, he's friends with the directors. They I mean, went to uni together. I mean, I'd, I'd like to say Bruce Campbell. That's probably a, a better like for like, right? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll give you that. But either example works. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of uh, B-grade people. That would be good advice, by the way, at university, at an what? arts course. If you had actual talent spotter, you know, people who are good at identifying talent, if somebody just came in, I mean, maybe they do do this, but gave you the absolute fucking honest truth. About and what? And just went, you know what? You're only ever going to get three lines in something, but there is actually a good role in the industry for people to get three lines in something. Yeah. Like if you concentrate on that, you'll dominate the three lines. You, my friend, are fine. You've got a bunch of all-round talents, but your best bet is to become really good friends with Lee Winnell and James Wan because what? those guys are going places and I think you can latch onto them. Everybody needs a third friend. You can break up the tension between the couple of them. I do think that is a talent though. I was talking to Jim the other day, we were listening to some Oasis and I was talking about um, Liam Gallagher and I was like, so like Noel is clearly the creative force in Oasis. Liam just decided he was going to be cool. Like he was just going to be cool. He can sing enough. He's not going to write any of the lyrics. He's not going to write any of the music. He's just going to be cool and sing just well enough. And it's like, he gambled it all. He was like, you know, fuck it. I'm not going to try. I'm just going to, I'm just going to bet that I will land with the right people. It turned out to be his brother, but that paid off. So there is a skill to that. Like Easy e in, you know, NWA, like he wasn't the most talented. He didn't make any of the music. He was just like the kind of cool one. And they got him into the band. Like it does happen that you can just be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, Flavor Flav's a good example, right? Like, Flavor Flav brought something to Public Enemy, mm. but Chuck D was the driving creative force of it. But sometimes you need, like, to offset what Chuck D was doing, they needed, like, a hype man, a clown, yeah. right? Pretty pretty good job. I mean, Pretty and- good job. I always said it was the guy who played the the mouth percussion, what you, the beatbox, the human guy. beatbox, who toured with um, oh, Ben Harper. So I went to right. see Ben Harper. <laughs> And the human beatbox came out for one song. And I realized, what a fucking cool gig, right? <laughs> like, he travels the world being a rock star with Ben Harper. He can probably party heaps more than Ben Harper yes. can party because he only has this small commitment every night. The rest of his day is fucking free. He's touring the world, making his living, doing one song with Ben. Ben Harper's out there for like two hours, working his fucking ass off. And Human Beatbox rolls out for one song. Crowd goes wild because who doesn't love the fucking Human Beatbox? Yeah. And Ben Harper's written a good song for Human Beatbox. And then you just walk back to the hotel, get into a Netflix series or something. Well, wasn't that like Sid Vicious's role in the Sex Pistols as well? He couldn't actually play the bass. He was just kind of the cool, he was the most punk looking of the guys. And it's like, well, you'll just get you on stage and you can just spit on the crowd and take bottles to their head and all that kind of shit. Like... I mean, it's kind of like what a goon is in ice hockey, right? You just have one guy comes in, not necessarily skilled, but they're just there to fucking like take some knocks, just draw some attention away. How much do you think that... So some bands dress alike, yep. right? 
like they've clearly made a decision. Hey, everybody, we're wearing the black t-shirts tonight. You too. I spoke about the idea that like Larry Mullins Jr. was wearing like a t-shirt that had like the crowd, you know, the place they were in every night. So they've clearly thought about, hey, this is what we'll wear on stage every night. They've probably got like a wardrobe person. They get into their like, you know, show uniforms. It gets professionally cleaned, you know, and they get back into them again the next night. I'd imagine that. It's not probably just whatever Bono's wearing that day. I imagine that Bono probably wears a pretty similar thing every night of the tour. Yeah. Then there's those other bands where you're just like your Radiohead or whatever, where Mm. it's just like five or six dudes. Do you reckon they ever talk about what are you wearing tonight? Do Radiohead ever, does Tom York ever like ring up Ed or like Johnny or Phil or whatever and just say, hey, what are you wearing tonight? Because I'm thinking about wearing this. Well, I don't know Radiohead well enough, but are they, how many is in the band? Four, five? Five or six. Okay. And are they five distinct personalities where like one's a mod, one's a rocker, one's a Well, you know, you know who Tom York is, obviously. Yep. So Tom York... These days, normally rocks something smocky. He's got like a man bun, like he's got yep. a beard. Um, yep. That's kind so of so. Would vibe. you say his look is more boho kind of artisty? Yeah. I, like he's like a dude who's done a bunch of mushrooms later in his life and decided <laughs> to wear comfortable pants and like yeah. wear his like hair in a bun and like you know, yeah, he's definitely got a bit of that look. Okay, then you've got Johnny. So Johnny's cool guy, Bob. You know, Bob hair, like, you know, like falls over his face for pretty much the entire gig, despite the fact that he's like incredibly sort of handsome, but he hides his face. He's got that sort of always wearing something very thin, always wearing, looks like a Neil Gaiman character. Okay. Looks like Sandman a bit in a Neil Gaiman without the hair being, you know, if Sandman got his hair straightened, you've got a bit of Johnny playing, you know. So slightly kind of goth rocky. Yeah, goth Not- rocky plays a, a dozen different instruments. Yeah, you know, very music school, very yeah. like the 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 most talented guy at music school. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll just stop you there, Will. I think that already because they're so distinct, no, they wouldn't have to consult because Johnny's not rocking up in a smocky, you know, tripper uh, just took mushrooms outfit, and doesn't sound like Tom York will turn up in like tight, you know, skinny jeans and a black shirt with floppy hair. I think a band more like the Foo Fighters or like Weezer or one of those bands where the guy and the guys are all a bit more similar in their look and style. Like Weezer are all kind of nerdy white guys, middle-aged white guys. I could imagine that there might be an issue there because the only distinct one you'd say is Rivers has glasses. So, you know, the rest of them, I guess, I don't know, like – yeah, they would probably have to say, I'm thinking of wearing a blazer tonight. <laughs> like, What if another guy needed glasses? Like his eyes have yeah. got bad in old age. Weezer are getting back together and he rocks up to Weezer and he's I got think, the same pair of glasses. I think, the drummer, I think the drummer does wear glasses, but just different. Because like, Rivers, his glasses are iconic. They're the kind of Buddy Holly kind of, you know, glasses. Whereas the drummer, I believe, just has like normal rimless glasses. But what about the Foo Fighters? Like they're all kind of... Well, I guess Dave Grohl's rock and roll. His tattoos, his like black t-shirts, jewelry, tight jeans. Taylor Hawkins is a surfer, always in like board shorts and sleeveless tees because he sweats so much. And then you got Pat. He's just kind of what does Pat Smear wear? I can't even like think. It's, I mean, it's so nondescript. It's bit, forgettable. Bit, mi- bit middle aged, I reckon. Like a baggy shirt or something. Baggy shirt and baggy pants. <laughs> Okay, so let's say Taylor Hawkins decides I'm sick of like taking my shirt off at gigs. I'm yeah. sick of having this long hair. I'm going to do a complete and utter makeup, uh, makeover. I'm going to get my hair cut yeah. and I want to wear like a three-piece suit. Ah. I'm going to wear a tie. Yeah. Like, does he have to run that past Dave Grohl or can he just rock up one night? Uh, like, I think he... Well, from the, the behind-the-scenes videos as soon as those two guys, they're like boyfriends. They love each other. I don't think... There would be an issue. I don't think Dave treats the Foo Fighters like his band. But maybe if it was the right. bass player, he wouldn't be like, "Okay, you, you're you, who's who brought the narc? What's going on here?" <laughs> no, I think I think those guys have been around long enough that they, he would think it was funny. It was a, it was just like a changing his image. But the bass player, whose name I do not know, if he suddenly turned up in an attention grabbing outfit, I think that maybe Dave would pull him into line because. A, you're the bass player. Don't 
draw attention. Like Taylor Hawkins, even though he's the drummer, he's kind of the unofficial other leader of Foo Fighters, wouldn't you say? Like it's Dave's well, band. Here's but- what here's what I would say. It's a band that values drummers. Like everybody kind of gets that if Dave Grohl isn't drumming, the drummer for the Foo Fighters has got to be like a super drummer. And Dave Grohl, when he writes these songs, he writes amazing drum parts for the songs because he's naturally a drummer. And so you've got a dude who knows how to write great songs. Like, I don't know what Taylor, Taylor probably does a lot of it himself and all these sort of things, but you've got like a drummer and a drummer's mindset. And then with this incredibly talented, I reckon drumming is valued in the band, the highest of all the things. So yes, I think the order is, yeah, definitely it would be Dave, and then him, I think, yeah, he's the vice captain. Yeah. He's like the, yeah. the, the drum. He's the uh, Mr. Spock to Dave Grohl's Captain Kirk. Like, there's a clear yeah, leadership gap between them, but you'd be just as you'd trust Mr. Spock to take over if Captain Kirk went down. <laughs> <laughs> this it's show, the funny thing about Taylor we Hawkins, just can't too. talk about university education. We've given it a couple of guys, <laughs> and just how quickly. Our brains flee any intellectual conversation. The thing about Taylor Hawkins is that I've seen a couple of interviews with him now. I think his musical tastes are quite cheesy. Like his favourite band in the world, I've heard him say this numerous times, is Queen. He loves Queen because he just thinks Queen, they could play any genre of music. You know, they could play rock, they could play disco, they could do opera, all that kind of stuff. But I've seen a few like videos of them in concert where... Dave's given Taylor like the microphone and he's got up and he's sung a Queen song or he's sung, you know, some other song. And he's got a real dorky cheesiness. Like you can sort of see why they keep him behind the drums because he is much cooler and much more of an enigma when he's like animal, hair flying, shirtless, drumming like a wild man in the background. But you get him up front and he's singing like Fat Bottom Girls or something. It's just not as cool. I've spoken about this before on the show, but... My favorite moment of that, without a doubt, was when I went to see Bon Jovi. Now, I ironically have a Bon Jovi key ring. And for whatever reason, bon, the fact that I like Bon Jovi has become a bit of a like joke in my world. If you want to make fun of me, they go, yeah, but you like Bon Jovi. And <laughs> I, for many years, resisted the idea that I actually like Bon Jovi. But then I went and saw Bon Jovi. <laughs> And I like to think that I have pretty cool taste in music, but I fucking loved it. They were super entertaining. Like a, like talking about bands like the Foo Fighters, there's not a big difference in what they're both trying to achieve. They're both going yeah. out there to do this rock and roll show for two hours, play you all these hit songs that you're going to love at the highest energy. And like, the, you know, they're not going to phone it in. This is not Bob Dylan. He's not going to like have a shit voice or it's not someone who's going to turn his back on the audience or anything like this. No, 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 no. You're here to see Bon Jovi. Yeah. And tonight you're here to, you, if you believe this is going to be the greatest rock show you've ever seen, then we're going to buy into the presenters. This is the greatest rock show you've ever seen. And I have never been to a gig and I've been lucky enough to go to a lot of shows over my, my life. I have never been to a gig where the audience enjoyed it more. Like from the minute they came on stage to the minute they finished this crowd, like there were people, they sold, they were in a big stadium. They were in like the city, like in out at Homebush, like the big Olympic stadium. And they'd sold behind the stage. There was obviously so much demand that they'd sold all behind the stage. So for the entire night, like, 3,000 people had bought tickets just to look at the back of Bon Jovi while Bon Jovi did a show. And those people, from start to finish, danced and cheered and they were having the best time of their entire life. That's the people behind the stage who couldn't see what was going on. The rest of the (laughs) audience were like, I was just like, you're going to kill some people tonight, John Bon Jovi, because there are a lot of (laughs) middle-aged people who are just... Like people singing his romantic songs to each other, like in couples, like people just having so much fun. And then he says, and now ladies and gentlemen, Richie Sambora would like to come up and sing you one of his songs. Uh. And 10,000 people at once go to the bathroom. (laughs) Like I've never (laughs) seen. It was, it made my night. Because literally, ah. this is what Richie must see every night of the tour. Like, imagine the Faustian agreement that he is in, that he gets to sing his own song, but he knows 
that in that moment, half of the audience who've just been having the best time of their entire life will decide to go and get a bucket of popcorn. I was um, doing a bit of a Van Halen deep dive after Eddie Van Halen died and watched like a bunch of interviews with him and David Lee Roth. And it was really interesting um, uh, hearing like how they came to be like the biggest because I and I you you sort of they're one of those bands that you, you know Van Halen but you don't really know Van Halen until you sort of do a deep dive and then you find out just how huge they were and like in the late 70s and early 80s they were like the biggest act in rock and roll and now you and I have often lamented on this show like where are the rock bands like what happened to the rock bands why aren't they top 20 anymore or anything like that and so the way that they came about so it was Eddie and uh, his brother god I can't remember his name but his brother plays drums Freddy. and then they brought no, Eddie, I think it's Tom, Tommy Van Halen. Can you, uh, Mike, can you look up who plays drums for Van Halen, what Eddie Van Halen's brother's name is? Um, but they just gigged all around Southern California. Like, they played everywhere. And they played bar mitzvahs, they played weddings, they played bars, they played, you know, state fairs. They played all these different kinds of music. And David Lee Roth was saying, like, uh, California is such a big state and there are so many different kind of, like, ethnic groups there and social groups there that... You know, they would have to go to one place and play like surf rock and then they'd have to go to East LA and they'd have oh. to play like a lot of Latin music and stuff. And so they became really proficient in all these different styles of music. And he said, then you sort of look at the individual band members, the three driving forces where you had the drummer who was just straight ahead, rock and roll, ACDC. Then you had Eddie who was much more sort of prog rock and experimental. And then you had David Lee Roth who really was just like a showman like he loved disco he loved just like all the all the kind of big hair and the flares and the tight clothes that was all kind of david lee roth's idea but david lee roth was saying the reason they became the biggest band in the world was a they could like you got a van halen album you'd have all these different genres of music in the one album so they'd sell everywhere but it was rock and roll you could dance to like you go to a van halen concert and the audience actually moved and remember we were saying about foo fighters a couple of weeks ago that that was like the last rock show I remember going to where the audience was actually dancing. Like you don't see, well, not just moshing, but actually like out of their seats and moving to the music. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense now, you don't see a lot of that in, in rock music, like dance music and hip hop and stuff. That's kind of what people dance to now and that's what dominates the charts. But maybe there is room for a band to come in that plays rock and roll, but it's rock and roll you can dance to. Here's what I will say, is I worked at Triple M over my life four to five years over my life. And I didn't talk about the Foo Fighters anywhere near as much at Triple M <laughs> as I do on this podcast. I think people are a bit mean to Triple M when they're like, ah, oh, it's bloody all Foo Fighters, isn't it? No. You know what's all Foo Fighters? <laughs> fucking Tofop. Every fucking, fucking week, pop. the Foo Fighters. Dave Grohl's cool. <laughs> He's almost as cool as The Rock. Well, Anyway, we've all got degrees. Uh, Media arts communication degrees. <laughs> Well, let's uh, touch on what our other favourite topic, The Rock, because um, uh, I've been staying on the Gold Coast the last few days. And uh, look, you know what? The first couple of days I was there, I was like, Will's got it wrong. This place doesn't need to be built. It's fun. It's like, it's dorky and it's weird and it's been dropped from the sky. It's like a shopping, it's like a giant shopping mall. It's got absolutely no identity or culture and it just feels, everything feels impermanent and transient, but that's fine. You know but what I love like is, Las Vegas, your defense of it would be also in my arguments to condemn it. So <laughs> it's interesting. Well, I actually thought like where I was staying, I had such a great view of the Gold Coast and like geographically, it's beautiful. Like the land is amazing. Like it's almost like, and I understand that the buildings are all gross and modern and designed without any kind of like style and blah, 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 blah. But I feel like, I feel like if you could just reclaim it, you know, just like, I don't know, like just get some great architects in there to say, look, don't tear anything down, but we want you to, I don't know, like turn these into kind of like modern high rises, vertical farming, get some greenery in there. Let's fucking clear out all the shitty like $2 stores and shitty cafes and put in some, I reckon it could be like, uh, like a, a jewel in Australia's crown. Yeah. You know, a good way, a good and much more efficient than your suggestion way to do that. Bulldoze <laughs> the entire thing into the fucking ocean and start again. But it's, it's, I don't think you need to go that far because I think the Why layout not? of it is It's fine. a fucking knockdown job. This is not a fucking <laughs> Renault. This is, let's just knock it down and start again. Well, the other thing I'd say about it at the moment is it is it is literally Hollywood on the Gold Coast. Like I bumped into a couple of friends who are working on 
Netflix films, Hollywood movies, they're shooting Elvis up there at the moment. There are so many actors and crew and directors. Like, you just kept seeing, like, famous people everywhere. Like, it's, it's, it was like being... You know what? It was a lot like being in L.A. It felt kind of soulless and beautiful at the same time. <laughs> you know, there was a, a lot of silicon, a lot of tattoos. Well, the, they just announced that Chris Hemsworth's going to do something on the Gold he's sh- Coast. He's, he's shooting there a Netflix... Se- well, he's like shooting tonight. a Netflix series right now on the Gold Coast. Uh, but it's... The, one of the actors I was talking to who was working on that film was saying that the producers there right. are saying to her, holy shit, like we had no idea that this is what Australia had on offer. Like we want to bring like another, we've got like another 15 productions in the pipeline that we were going to shoot in the States, but we all know what's going on there. Like they just want to bring all that stuff here. And it makes a lot of sense because if you think about LA, the climate of LA, you know, the light there, the access to studios, like Australia's got all of that, but it's also not LA. <laughs> not riddled with COVID. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's also in a place that's not riddled with a deadly pandemic disease. So one of the hotels we were staying at, um, when we sort of checked in, I just kept seeing these fucking enormous dudes walking around, like just gigantic, like not just big, but like bodybuilder big, but bigger than bodybuilder big, like huge men, six foot five, six foot six, Head to toe muscle, and one guy, like I was saying to Jim, you said, this, I said to Jim, this this reference is going to mean anything to you, but that guy is a dead ringer for the Iron Sheik because he was giant, bald, big curly like barbershop mustache. So he's walking around, and after two or three days, I'm like, holy fuck, The Rock is shooting his TV show in Queensland, which is all about him as a kid growing up in the WWF in the 80s. That fucking dude is the Iron Sheik. Like, he had to be the Iron Sheik. I'm willing to bet everything that that guy I saw walking around is playing the Iron Sheik in the Rocks TV show. Okay, so it wasn't the Iron Sheik, just to be clear. It was the no. guy who's playing the Iron Sheik in the Rocks TV show. Yeah, because I couldn't work out my entire... The entire hotel was filled with Americans. Like, like everyone. Look at, I, look at Charlie Clawson living a life where he can stay in the same hotel as the Iron Sheik. Oh, no, the guy who's playing the Iron Sheik. <laughs> playing the Iron the Sheik. series they're making about The Rock. Okay, that makes more sense. Well, I think... I mean, knowing where the Iron Sheik, I think, in his current state has ended up, probably you would want to be staying where the guy playing the Iron Sheik is staying these days. I don't know that the real Iron Sheik is doing that well for himself these days. Um, uh, but speaking yeah, this, of The Rock... Can I ask you a question? Because yeah. sure. this idea that The Rock's making a series about his own life could not be more interested in this content. Like, yep. I have decided I'd like to see some other shows just where they replace the host or like the main character with The Rock. I don't think that like he has to come up with new original concepts, but like I'd just like to see... I don't How know, I Met like, Your Rock? Sorry? How I Met Your Rock. How I Met Your Rock. How I Met The Rock. That's what I want to see. 12 series, an entire series dedicated to how one dude once met The Rock. In fact, it's my life story about that time that I met The Rock. (laughs) Well, it's all different people who have met him. It's kind of like their stories of how they met The Rock. Oh, that'd be, I'd watch that. If they did a documentary series and every week it was just like people recounting anecdotes about when they met The Rock, I'd be absolutely fine with that. <laughs> now, uh, we're going to do a slightly shorter episode tonight, yes. um, but I don't want to cheat people out of the inundation we have received of uh, macho correspondence. Um, we had Robert who wrote in last week, uh, you may remember Will, lived in Nebraska uh, was an electrician, had been uh, elect- electrocuted a number of times, uh, had lost a quarter, was it a quarter? No, a third of one of his testicles in a bungee accident. Um, well, Robert sent us a follow-up. So uh, for those of you who are listening to this <laughs> podcast for the first time, and fuck, why have you? Uh, we're running a competition right now. Who is Tofop's most macho listener? Guy or girl, whoever. Anyone can Joe compete. Fop. We just need... Macho fop. You just need to send in your bona fides. Bona fides? Bona fides? How do you pronounce it? Either. Yeah. <laughs> your bona fides. Um, and let us know why you should be considered. Because uh, this whole conversation started off the off the back of me wondering if all our listeners were like, you know, like beta males like Will and I, or if we have some real like macho people who listen to this. So uh, Robert writes in saying, uh, greetings once again, Will and Charlie. I was thrilled to hear you praise my machismo. On the latest episode, I was also shocked that my Tofop respondence was read in such a timely manner. Unfortunately, 
I feel that I was unintentionally the recipient of some stolen, stolen macho valor. My bungee cord injury was not due to a badass bungee jumping accident. I have never had the balls, LOL, to do something that macho. Instead, it was a small bungee cord like you would secure a load, LOL, in the bed of a truck or a ute, as you say in Australia. So I think this is a miscommunication. Bungee cord is an Oki strap in Australia. Do you know what I will say? Admire your honesty. You didn't need to clear that up. You could have just let that... You could, in the history of TOEFOP, when this, when this podcast is studied by <laughs> students at the revived Rusden University, off the heat of this podcast, when people <laughs> get together to study this podcast, Bill and Ted style, yeah. at Rusden <laughs> University... <laughs> Uh, you could have cleared it up. I, I appreciate that you cleared it up for the record. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I still think that's pretty macho. Like to be being hit in the nut with a small like rubber strap is still pretty full on. Like that would have that would hurt. I imagine being hit, as we say in Australia, by an Oki strap right in the testicles would have would have hurt like the bejesus. I, I agree, but it's not like. An injury bungee while bungee cording. jumping, which would be yeah, much more enough. macho. Uh, furthermore, it wasn't even a macho item I was securing. Mm. It was an antique nightstand that my wife had purchased. <laughs> I won't go into further details of my injury, but I will say that I highly recommend to all other listeners not to get hit in the nuts by a bungee cord. Okay. The worst part was having to follow up visit, uh, having follow up visits with a female urologist. Never in my life have I felt more embarrassed than showing my scrotum to her so that she could check the progress of my recovery. At least I was fortunate enough to have insurance at the time. Anyway, congrats on the lockdown being lifted. Enjoy your government-provided health care and sensible society that takes care of its citizens. Cheers, Robert. Uh, Robert, I did have my scrotum examined once, not by a female urologist, but by a male urologist. And I can say that it doesn't matter the gender of the, of the person. It is... Just as embarrassing. I did not feel very macho in that moment as he scanned my scrotum with uh, an ultrasound wand. Yeah. And when Charlie says urologist, what he means is priest, but he can't say that for legal reasons. (laughs) Uh, This is from Chris. Uh, He says, uh, the subject is machismo. My testicles are still intact, but I was a volunteer firefighter and a licensed EMT for a rural fire department in central... Nebraska for six and a half years. That was a I few mean, years ago. Yeah, what and so I understand is, if it Charlie, no longer counts. Before you read on. <laughs> okay. We've got a contender. All I'm oh. saying is you're in the game. At this point, like the, the place of origin has been ruled out, but it says for six years. So there's going to be a possibility of other years in other places. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm in. I'm intrigued is what I'm saying. Well, don't get too intrigued because that's pretty much all he wrote. Um, amazing that our two two of our entrants have come from Nebraska, which I think clearly is where machismo is needed, like to live in that environment. Um, a firefighter, pretty macho. A licensed EMT, I think that counts as being macho, right? You, that's a physical, Absolutely. you're saving lives and shit. Bloody hero. Put fighting off bloody junkies and stuff, I imagine, at some point. <laughs> Uh, he says, that was a few years ago, so I understand if it no longer counts. And then I think Chris also sent a follow-up. Yeah, he did. He said, um, uh, I just wanted to add uh, that since leaving the volunteer fire department, I had a heart attack that I chalked up to being a bad chest cold. I carried on as usual for three days before seeing a doctor about it. So how's that? Had a fucking heart attack. Like your dad, had a heart attack and just brushed it off as being like a chest cold. Got on That's with bloody, bloody macho. Work. Got on with his day. <laughs> Um, I had a bloody heart attack. Anyway, cows won't milk themselves. <laughs> the needle might lean more towards aggressively stupid than macho, but that's eh, kind of the same thing, right? Um, uh, so while they were putting the stent in the offending artery, they discovered that I had a previous heart attack at some point that I was unaware of. That 100% blocked artery required no treatment. My heart got into DIY and built its own bypass, developing collateral arteries. This fucking dude is so macho. His heart was like, can't get any blood through here, so I'll just a little, pop open a little hole there. There you go. Yeah, right as rain, Bloody, mate. We'll just El Chapo our way out of here. We'll just dig our way out, mate. It'll be fine. This is pretty macho. Uh, he says, there are no active polar bears in Nebraska. 
but there are rattlesnakes, bobcats, and mountain lions. Well, fuck. I mean, anything that I think can snatch you off your BMX on the way to primary school, I think that that's a pretty. You're going to be pretty fucking macho to live in that in that state, right? Yep, yeah, I agree. Two good contenders. Oh, yeah. This is from Anna. Uh, she says, um, a macho fop. Hey, guys. Uh, I may be sending this twice as my macho skills lead to computer illiteracy, and I just lost uh, the email I'd typed. So I thought I'd better represent the ladies, although we all know the guy with two-thirds of a testicle is the mas- most macho of them all. Well, I don't know. Since then, we've had a bloody volunteer firefighter uh, and uh, EMT bloody jo- jo- into, the, into the fight. I have been a gardener slash handyman on the mines doing minor repairs and plumbing, but most of the job was just chasing away wild cattle from the reticulation in a golf cart. Now, when you say she was doing minor repairs, yeah. she was working in a mine. Was she repairing the miners or she was doing small Small, repairs? small, a handyman in the mines. Small repairs in a yeah. mine. Uh, but most of her job was chasing away cattle from the reticulation in a golf cart, fixing the reticulation. What is that? What does that mean, reticulation? You know what? I'm already impressed by her much <laughs> saying reticulation. Do you know what it means? Um, absolutely not. Podcast Mike, can you look up reticulation for these two very beta males who have no idea on what that means? Um, uh, fixing the reticulation that the cattle ate, must be like grass or something, and mowing the lawns, unfortunately not side saddle. I have worked in chemistry laboratories, not as cool as it sounds as I was a winemaker. I've also worked in sheepyards, popped out a couple of humans, one of which was amazingly traumatic and nearly killed us both. And a shout out to all the laughing medical staff and blood donors out there. I currently work with dogs of all sizes and manners, but perhaps the most macho thing is I love my fishing. Still chasing that elusive 10-foot Mako fin boy, but a few fresh whiting off the beach is fine too. Thanks for all the laughs in the Tafopaverse, Anna. Okay. Reticulation, a pattern or arrangement of interfacing lines resembling a net. Mm. A network of pipes, this will be it. A network of pipes used in irrigation and water supply. Right. So she's got to chase the cows away from the reticulation around the mines? Or no, yeah, that's a different job. The cows are mad for some reticulation, mate. They get, want to get into the water pipes. They're bloody no, cows. She, They're like, hey, she, guys, <laughs> I, I spot a reticulator over there. We better go and get some reticulation. Is that all for our much show for this week? I think it might be. We've got some regular mail to get to as well. It's, it's not a it's not a huge list so far, is what I would say. If you are a macho listener and you want to contribute to... You, you've seen where the bar is set. And at the moment, <laughs> I was hoping that we might... like. Like, we've got two offshore guys. That's fine. I'm happy. But, like, literally the entire state of Nebraska is outrepresented on this podcast in regard to our macho competition. Hang on. Let me just do I think this is another macho. Oh, yeah, here we go. Sorry. This is from Damien. This might bloody... This might, this might help right. you out here. All right. Okay. I, I should do it in a bloody macho voice. Damien. Uh, two Colin Fop as a six-foot-five hair-covered bearded ex-security guard... I feel qualified to enter my. Uh, I feel qualified to enter. My achievements include listening to Tofop while working as a guard at a strip club. <laughs> you guys got me through some long nights. Strip club bounces pretty much, oh? Don't you reckon they're dealing with the worst of the worst? Yeah, I agree. Drunk footballers, bikers, the worst of the worst. That's macho. Big, hairy security guard at a strip club listening to Tofop. That's pretty macho. Six foot five. I use my booming dad voice to, uh, to shock and awe my two-year-old from running onto the road. But the most macho thing of all, being a board member for Happy Tales Animal Rescue, a non-profit that helps rescue mostly dogs and cats from pounds before they get put down. Thought I'd sneak in a plug. Well, you know what? That's the best kind of macho. Macho with a, heart, with a soft heart, right? Yeah, but what I'm saying is that's toe-fop macho. Like, he, yeah. like I admire this absolutely unin... Like, like without reservation, I admire what he's just said. Glad to have the pluck in the show. What an absolute fucking hero of our society. Once again, Charlie, EMTs, fucking pet rescuers, doctors. This is a podcast that pitches itself to an audience that is much lovelier than the people who host the show. But here's what I will say. It does devalue your macho-ness. That you're like, I mean, I get it's a cool thing to rescue pets from death row. Don't get me wrong. 100% behind it. Couldn't be more enthusiastic about it. However, I don't know. Puppy rescue. It, I, I, 
Uh, I don't know. All right, I've got one that maybe will win you over. Although, all right, well, let, let's just read it and then we can discuss it afterwards. There's also a link I'm going to send you that you can watch at the end of this. I'm just going to drop it into the message window and we can watch it after the email. Um, hello. I wouldn't think so highly of myself to think I'm your most macho listener, but I would have to argue that I would be a macho listener. I'll leave the superlatives up to you. I am an electrician who works in the docks in Florida. I mean, why are all our... Isn't Australia like mental? I thought we had the reputation for being like the macho. How come everyone... Apart from Anna, everyone's coming from bloody America. You know what? I think my perspective on our audience has been skewed by that. I mostly run into people in Australia. And if they say they like the show, they're mostly not macho people. But maybe if I was in America walking around, there'd be these big burly blokes coming up to me and ladies... And saying, hey, bloody love Tofop. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it maybe because, like, you know how to Americans, all Australians sound kind of like rough? Like, even well educated Australians, we sound like, we all sound like working class to them. So, right. does that mean the level of macho in Australia is so macho that those dudes aren't going to listen to us because we sound like pansies? But to American macho guys, we sound macho, so they feel okay about listening to us. There might be something in what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like, we all sound like Russell Crowe to them. Right. Maybe that is it. Maybe in, in that country, my high, squeaky, annoying voice is actually beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I am an electrician who works on the docks in Florida, the lightning capital of the world. If I'm not on a dock, I'm in, the, I'm in an attic, which has covered my shaved head in multiple scars from hitting the nails they put uh, shingles down with. Since I've been in Florida, I've only had to chase an alligator out of our parking lot once so my son could play with his friends. All right, that's good. Chasing an alligator out of parking lot, that's, that's getting better. Now, this is, this is what we want. My history has been hurt. in the lightning capital of America too. Like it feels like, yeah, you're a guy Living, who knows how to handle it. Isn't Florida one of those stand your ground states as well? Like I think, you know, that's, that's pretty much right. Mate, the fucking lightning shot at me first. <laughs> My history of being hurt and not going to the doctor is very extensive. Okay, good. While playing football, I dislocated a finger, played half a season with a hernia until the coaches found out, and, uh, and I, then I broke my shoulder in the preseason of my senior year and went ahead and played the whole year before getting it checked out. I mean, that's okay. pretty much all right, playing a whole season with a broken yeah. shoulder. I've worked for a full day on a dislocated foot that I thought was just sprained because I fell 14 feet out of an attic. I got shocked on my wedding ring and it melted the titanium and it ruined the nerve in my finger. So now I can't stand to wear a ring anymore. Does being injured multiple times make you macho or does that just make you clumsy? I think being injured multiple times and shaking it off. Like he's John Wicked, it, basically. Because yeah. that's what John Wick does in his movies, right? Like he sustains something that would actually cause him a major injury and he just keeps going. I feel like this is what Florida Thor has been doing. <laughs> when I was younger, I used to fight in barroom boxing matches. I was once asked to do a Royal Rumble style three-way match, everyone for themselves. The other two guys didn't hit each other once. They just beat the shit out of me. The bigger one was six foot five and weighed about 330 pounds. <laughs> I listened to another podcast called The Flagrant Ones and I made a rap parody song for it. But instead of rapping about being rich or cool, I rapped about my normal life. It made the guys on the other pod laugh, so I'll include it here in case you guys get a kick out of it. But here is a video of me getting my ass kicked physically. So that's what I've dropped into your window. So you ready to watch this? Yeah. All right. So if you got, just let me know when you got it up. Just wait for okay. the... Uh, okay. Mine's playing. Is yours playing? I playing now. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So we see he's in the red. And he's getting the absolute shit oh punched my, out of him. Oh, my God. Oh, so for people at on. home, it's a boxing ring set up in a bar. They're wearing headgear oh and God. gloves. And our mate, Ian, is getting the absolute suitcase punched out of him by two very big dudes. The okay, the refs come over said, to check him. The announce, I've just turned mine off for a second. The announcer literally just said, Holy shit. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a thing. You couldn't do that these days, right? This was, it says Feb 2013. 
you couldn't just set up a boxing ring in a bar and allow dudes to go in and just punch in the shit out of each other, not with concussions you, and stuff. You will be able to again soon in America, I imagine. If, if <laughs> inside bars that. is not on the streets, everybody will be happy with it, I think. that That's pretty much though. And also, it feels like a very toe-fop performance. <laughs> like, it's very on brand. <laughs> but he got this shit kicked out of him. Just, but the, the two bigger guys ganged up against us to beat the shit out of us. I was like, that that to me feels like the podcast. But that probably is a look. I mean, no offense to any of the other uh, listeners who've written so far, but that's the first physical confrontation macho fop uh, entrant we've had. Someone who's actually physically put their body on the line for no reason. Like, it's not like getting electrocuted at work or something. He got into like a physical altercation for no other reason than to test his mettle. Right. It's not a night at the well, strip club, whereas the bouncer, you've had to deal with some unruly customers. This is literally on your own time, just in a bar. Like, not only agreeing to be in a bar fight for people's amusement, but then they suggest, you know what would be a fun idea? What if instead of two guys fighting, it was three guys fighting? And you weren't like, but hang on. <laughs> Could that mean that two of them just gang up and beat the shit out of me? Because I feel like with three, like the way you're imagining it is we're all kind of punching each other equally, but I am going to speculate about what might really happen. I believe that two out of the three will gang up on the weaker member and bash them to death. And I think that I'm that person. So what do you reckon those two guys, the other two guys conferred before getting into the ring, like when the when the contest was announced, two mates said, "Why don't we both go in? We'll beat the shit out of the third guy, then you can knock me out, and we'll split the the drink card or whatever they were fighting for." No, I don't think that they probably planned it like that. I just think there's a natural human fight instinct that kicks in, which is if he's out, I'm still in, and then I can deal with the other problem when it gets to just the two of us. <laughs> All right, well, Macho Fop, the contest is still wide open. If you think that you've got what it takes to be Tofop's most macho listener, you can send in your bona fides, your bona feces, your bona food eyes uh, to tofop.com. Go to tofop.com. There's a little contact form at the bottom of our splash page. And while you're there, you can check out some of our other great podcasts. Will, who's on Willosophy this week? Uh, Nikki Britton uh, is on an episode that went up a couple of days ago. She is a, a young, well, a newer stand-up comedian that people not might not be that aware of, but has an incredible story to tell. Uh, last week, Pete Murray and Broden Kelly from Auntie Donna, because Auntie Donna have a brand new show on Netflix that I highly recommend if you're a fan of... Uh, surreal and is there an australian podcast that a member of auntie donna is not on at the moment it feels like every all my favorite australian podcasts have at least one member of auntie donna that that's that's why it pays to have three three people in your crew well here's what i will say also is and it's one of the things that broden and i talk about so i'm not telling tales out of school but a lot of people I i think you know this as well but auntie donna isn't just three guys auntie donna is like six i think people and they have like a team some behind the scenes, you know, doing the videos, doing like, you know, other things that put it all together, social media they share. You know, they have six people and they work on this act called Auntie Donna. And so in a time like this, it's incredibly great for them because, like you said, somebody can get like, Broden, you go and do a philosophy and Mark, you go and do this. And like, yeah, you can kind of... But the other thing that I will say about them, and it's why I recommend this show without ever... Having, I haven't seen it yet, but... I like their stuff, but secondly, they're just good guys. They are very well loved in the comedy community. So part of the reason they're on everything is not just because like they've got a thing out, but part of the reason they're on Mm. everything is that they are very well liked and respected within the comedy community. And um, I, you know, support their show. Have a look at it. See if it's to your sense of humor. I've seen it. The first, I've seen the first episode. Uh, it's great. Like I've I've been a big fan of theirs for a long time, and the show is excellent. It's totally uh, totally worth the binge. Um, you can also support Tofop by going to Patreon.com/slash/Tofop. There's heaps of bonus content up there. In fact, when we finish this, we're going to record a little quick bonus where we answer some Patreon mail. Um, but that's the best way to support the show. There's a new episode of Quantum Cop that James Fosdyke is working on right now, and James is listening to this episode as well because he's doing artwork for it. So James. 
I hope it's coming along well. I, I really appreciate all the, the snippets you've been sending me, but just get it done because people need to know what happens to Jack Tripper in Episode 5 of Quantum Cop. Uh, but that's it for now. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. How long? Not long. Everyone relax. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. (laughs) 